Hi, I'm Erin. And I'm Kimona. And this is Rebels Advocate, the podcast where we break down the shit show that is the current social climate and reframe the radical. Let's get started. Hi, Erin. Hey, Kimona. How are we? We are doing wonderful today. It's an exciting day. I know. A first guest of season three. Uh, Big moment, big moment. Um, I'm super excited to have this conversation because we talk about environmentalism a lot on this podcast, especially just intersectional issues. And I think having this guest here with us is a great opportunity to have this discussion um, with a bit more of an expert. So today we have with us Isaias Hernandez, aka Queer Brown Vegan, a freelance environmental educator and content creator who focuses on topics like veganism, zero waste, and environmental justice. Isaias is from Los Angeles, California, where he lived in a community that faced environmental injustice. Because of this, he became interested in learning about and protecting the environment. He went on to earn his BS in environmental science at the University of California, Berkeley, where he worked on a variety of diversity inclusion work in environmental spaces, academic research, and creativity work. He now resides in New York and Los Angeles, working as a full-time content creator, public speaker, and sustainability consultant and business coach. So Isaiah, we are so happy to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. I'm super excited for this chat. Absolutely. I think a really good place to start would just be hearing more about your background. I know on your platform, you talk about coming from a community of food insecurity and environmental injustice. And I would love to just pick your brain how you think that really impacted your experience and your relationship with environmentalism and and veganism. Yeah, definitely. So I would say that I grew up in Los Angeles, California, known as Dongbulan. My parents had immigrated from Mexico in the 1980s. And so they established themselves there. And I think growing up at a young age, like I realized that we were low income, meaning that like, you know, um, to be able to buy things or to ask to buy things at the 99 cent store, which were toys, like were very inaccessible. And so I think for me, um, my passion for environmentalism started at a young age where I remember just like collecting recycling cans in my neighborhood with my mom specifically. And I just remember that the recycling economy in LA is huge. Like a lot of people do this like in order to survive. And so I remember just like, you know, recycling cans and getting excited to like insert them to the machine next door to my apartment and getting paid like, I don't know, like 15 cents or 20 cents, you know, like that was like pretty cool. And I think like, I didn't really make those interconnections that that was really eco-friendly. I just saw that like as survival. And, you know, of course, like there was a lot of differences in intergenerations, especially like growing up in the early 2000s as a kid. And I think for my passion for environmentalism really started when I started learning more about like planet, like gardening, right? Like gardening education is like 101 or like, you know, save the sea, like how to recycle and things like that. And so that kind of got me invested into like, you know, these symbols and these logos and these terms. But I would say specifically like in middle school and high school, I started making these interconnections where it's like, why is it the fact that like a lot of the communities I live in are so different to the middle school and high school I attend that are in different cities that have more environmental resources or economic status. And I just saw the differences and, you know, throughout middle school and high school, I actually had a lot of jobs in like middle to high school. I worked with my dad as a gardener and I remember like cleaning up rich white people's homes in LA. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and like just remembering the fact of like how the kids that lived in those homes would always tell me that they're bored, but here I was like cleaning up their garden or like you know right. working with my dad. I'm like, oh, you're bored. Like, must be lucky to like you know be be to be able to relax and do nothing. And so I think like these moments of like how I saw environmentalism and classism really started to get me angry. Of like, why is it the fact that like we're told, oh, low-income people, like, your family didn't work hard in life, therefore you, like, have to live in this world, and I was like, no one, period, should live in a poisoned world, like, no matter who you are, and so I think in high school, when I learned about the term environmental justice, that talked about, like, how environmental racism plays a huge role, I was confused, like, what do you mean environment and racism? Back then, when, you know, media was becoming more popular, it wasn't like, oh, you should Google it, right? Because it's like, well, right. what words do I exactly Google? And a lot of us are indoctrinated by educational systems to not really be that self-critical or had parents that were radical to, to be radicalized and were indoctrinated by this American dream rhetoric. And so I didn't have those resources to kind of question it until like my siblings and I got older and were like, wait, there's something off with this. And so I think like in terms of that, that kind of inspired me to learn more about the fact of like how a lot of low-income communities that speak Spanish in my area live near like toxic waste incinerators or formerly EPA Superfund sites that were poisoned in the 1970s and 80s. And so that really concerned me, the fact of like, wow, we're literally living in near toxic dump and no one really cares about this or talks about this. We're only talking about like climate change and ocean conservation and you know, animals are dying, but no one talks about the communities that are dying in ocean, in ocean communities. And so that really got me inspired to be like, I just want to do environmental science because I didn't specifically know what what field I wanted to be in. I just was like, let me just study the environment because I thought it's the environment, people, and animals. So I was like, that's pretty simple, right? And so um, I got into university and like, obviously that was the opposite where it's like, it was very hard. Um, but I think that was like the main foundation of like my early stages of like learning about environmentalism. Absolutely. That's really incredible. I think that's definitely, you know, a time where you realize like growing up, if you're in the area where you talk about environmentalism, I know for me growing up, my parents were very like adamant about recycling and talking about those kinds of things. But it's not until you get older and you start having experiences with other people that you see that there's so much more interconnected um, with environmentalism and what it really means. It's not just about the earth, right? It's about people and animals and plants and all the biodiversity that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It, it's really, really important. I, I love that you brought up how people don't realize the that, you know, us as humans, our communities are part of the ecosystem. Like we, we environmentalism is also for us. Yeah. Um, it's not just to saving the planet, but like, because this something that I find really interesting to think about a, a lot is, you know, not to fall into climate doomism or anything, but like, if we were to never act on on any climate issues, the humans would leave, but the, the planet's still gonna be around. Like planet's gonna be fine. Like she'll get her she'll get her shit back together, you know, she'll get back into shape. It'll take her a second. But it's really about finding the the 
the necessary balance for all of us to live in harmony together. And that is so important. Yeah, and I think that's the idea of like, you know, re- regeneration, like how this stems from like indigenous worldviews of like, it's reciprocity of how we take care of ourselves and that reflects back to how we take care about the planet. And I think it's just not equally representative and treated in the way of whose responsibility has a greater impact to contribute more to communities and planetary health rather than like individuals um, constantly like self-shaming themselves into this like climate doomism rhetoric. Right. So in terms of your veganism, how do you think that this really has impacted your, your connection with becoming a vegan? Um, You know, how long have you been a vegan? And do you think that veganism is something that's like attainable and sustainable diet for everyone, especially when it's, usually portrayed as this whitewashed, rich, wealthy community. Yeah, I mean, I would say that for veganism, it's almost been three years. I would like to say that veganism itself is often labeled as a diet, but it's more of a lifestyle slash philosophy. Mm -hmm. Plant-based diets are more like related to those like um, people's consumption. And I think that with veganism, the stance that I have is both advocating for human and animal liberation, recognizing that a lot of these industrialized food systems that we live in today both um, oppress humans and animals, where animals are massively raised inhumanely and slaughtered at very fast rates. And humans, which are migrant farm workers that both work in these factory farms or picking our fruits and vegetables, have to work endless hours while also like having to fear deportation by ICE because they're constantly threatened um, if they do mobilize and they do organize. And so I think like with veganism, it's helped me kind of understand of like as an individual in this system that everyone partakes in the globalized food system, whether you're vegan or not, like how do I recognize that like I can advocate for more ecologically sound um, food systems that one would be uh, free from animals But however, I think it is important to also understand that veganism itself is not new. It's something that has really stemmed from a lot of indigenous and black indigenous cultures throughout the world, meaning that like not everyone follows like veganism, but there are a lot of dates and histories of a lot of plant-based rich foods, meaning that like meat for some cultures was very expensive back then. And so when I talk about the colonization of meat, it's not saying like, oh, indigenous communities that eat meat are colonized. It's more about the introduction of a lot of non-human animals to non-native environments has created this like large-scale ethic unethical supply chain that was never meant to be there that has disrupted ecological systems and communities. And so I think now it's been ingrained in a lot of our cultures to be like, well, we all eat meat in our cultures. When in reality, like, you know, my grandparents, from what they told me, like they used to like raise and like, I guess like you know, eat meat from their land or their farm. And, you know, in that sense, you know, when indigenous communities partake in these systems, it's, I think, like their idea of sustenance for um, partaking in the consumption of animals is very different than how we see it in the Western world. And so I think, like, I, as a vegan, really stand for just focusing on dismantling um, industrial ag as a whole because it's related to environmental justice, animal rights justice, economic and health justice and migrant justice itself. 
Absolutely. I think that's super relevant. I think that conversation really is a pinpoint for people who are against veganism or don't understand it. It's just, you know, the humans are meant to eat meat and that our ancestors ate meat. And for starters, a lot of cultures didn't. <laughs> a lot of cultures did not hunt uh, exclusively. And I think it's definitely important to really reflect on how that industry has grown in the Western world, especially of how much meat that we are producing for the purpose of slaughter, yeah. you know, injecting animals with antibiotics, which has a whole um, other portion of danger to our water systems, to how antibiotics affect humans. You know, it's become an industry that is really focused on creating animals as a food source, not for health purposes or sustenance, but as an industry, um, especially since it's not no, not healthy to be consuming meat, especially under the circumstances in which these major corporations are producing poultry and uh, beef and pigs, especially. I think the phrasing it as like, it has become an industry is really highlights the issue here, right? Because a lot of people, you know, are not going to, I don't know why people are against veganism. Like I, I, I get the stereotype of like the aggressive vegan that people have like come across, but like that's not the norm. And I've also like met people who like refuse to try vegan food, which just pisses me off because it's just another type of food to try. But I digress because when we look at it as an industry, we can realize just in the same way that so many other industries have become so corrupted. Um, particularly by you know capitalism and and the this putting profit uh, as the end all be all that like we have really bastardized the system that of, of like the way that we were meant to relate to food like I I even I have stories from my my parents they grew up in Jamaica um live I don't want to say a farm it was. I don't think they were technically living on a farm, but they had like their own chickens. They raised their own goats and like they had a connection to this food. It wasn't them like going out and just like buying it from from a corporation, from this big agricultural industry. And I think people don't realize that it's not necessarily that humans never ate meat. It's that we have significantly increased our meat consumption and that we're we've just like detached ourselves from it so much that it's it's like like nothing to us Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's the idea of like i think a lot of animal rights activists um frame this whole idea of speciesism meaning Mm -hmm. that like how we live in a species world where you know some people value humans over animals and this creates this like inter you know hierarchy list of like who is valued more but in reality that's not how it works because in society as human beings we know that black and indigenous peoples have been historically oppressed and designed and like compared historically to animals and so i think that really misses the point in what people are trying to understand and i think industrial agriculture as a whole was designed for the privatization of land, mm-hmm. food, and seeds. I mean, like, even the own seeds that we grow are owned by mega giant corporations, which is a huge issue. 
And it's not to say we hate GMOs. It's just to say that who has rights over seed, which is a natural living thing that a lot of cultures have understood. So this idea of like environmental colonialism for me, which is something I really argue about, is that it's not this species act of humans partaking in it. Like, yes, we all have individual responsibility, but the people who have designed this food system were rooted in capital growth, meaning like the most amount of country gain, GDP over food, um, a system that is designed to be wasteful and to be cruel is unsustainable. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you brought up the seed conversation because that's definitely one of my roots into being passionate about nutrition and this interconnection between environmentalism, humans, and you know this colonialist and capitalist outlook on something that is natural. Um, for me, my journey of food and like a relationship with food has really changed because I have so many uh, allergies and food restrictions. So in tandem of learning how my body can consume things differently by being in an environment where processing food is really creating a whole different realm for what my body can consume and not reject completely. Um, I also think it's interesting when I, I think I saw like a TikTok recently or something that somebody said that they were spending time abroad and they were, you know, giving themselves some food freedom, allowing themselves to eat things they normally wouldn't do. Um, and that they got back to America and they were, they actually had lost weight while they were there. And as soon as they had come back and started eating, you know, quote unquote, healthy foods, again, that they're buying at grocery stores and prepackaged things, um, they gained it all back and then some. And I think that's really telling similarly to people who have intolerances to potentially dairy or gluten like I do. Um, I've known people who are from European countries who go back home and visit family and can then partake in eating things that usually their body would reject, but it's completely different in a different system because in the Westernized world, especially the United States, there has been such a, it's again, this conversation of capitalism, profit, and making the most amount of food, who can make the most amount of money off of these things instead of eating something natural and that your body's supposed to consume. I think allergies are actually a really interesting way to see that dichotomy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that, in terms of, you know, people who are getting into veganism and promoting environmentalism, if you could teach, like, little baby environmentalism, uh, environmentalists one thing, if they're interested in becoming more involved in environmentalism or starting as a vegan, what do you think you would want them to know? Yeah, definitely. I think like with environmentalism at a whole, because it's very, it's a very holistic major or holistic field, which is like circular, which is that's why intersectional environmentalism comes up, is that I tell people to look into an industry they're very passionate about. It doesn't matter if you're not an environmentalist or not. Are you into fashion? Are you into electronics? Are you into writing? Are you into podcasting? Are you into educating? And I think then ask yourself, like, the materials that you use or systems that you use to be able to produce the work you do, do you know where that comes from? Do you know where that stems from? And so I think that's what people need to start asking themselves, like, how do I confidently engage in this subject 
for years. I think with veganism, it was about learning history for me and most specifically the argument behind the privatization of industrial ag for me got me inspired to go vegan because I think for me, I saw those videos of animals being slaughtered. Like my sister was a PETA vegan back then and you know, I'm glad she's not like that and she's vegan still, but you know, she was that type of person that constantly sent it to me, but I think my brain or whatever didn't want to register that or kind of acknowledge it, but didn't really see the, you know, the steps to do that or recognize like, what can I do? And so I think um, learning the history is super important because it provides this foundation of like what we have often been ignored and what we're often pushed out of like, no, it's good that we have food here. Um, the idea of food stamps being like designed to like help people, which, you know, they do, but in essence asking ourselves like, well, what food can these people buy? Like what, why are there so much meat and dairy in surplus, but no fruits and vegetables in surplus? Like there has to be an issue into these systems and so i think with baby vegans out there i would say like not to push them first to veganism and i say this because i'm someone that did reductionism meaning that like i reduced my way to veganism so that worked for me i know people are like no i could never do that i'm a one-off person so i tell people like understanding that like if you're able to lower your environmental impact as an individual it kind of creates this like self-change and motivation for yourself to be like wow what else can i do and so I think veganism for people is to first understand the history and then second of all, ask yourself, where are you able to reduce your intake? Because I think a lot of my friends are allergic to dairy milk like, yeah. <laughs> and cheese mostly nowadays. And it's just, it's a very common thing and it's concerning. Yeah, that was, that's similar to my journey with, I, I've never gone fully vegan, but I've had I go through like a month at a time. I take a month off and then I do it. And I, because I would never imagine my life without dairy until I was forced to not eat dairy because I couldn't consume it. And all of a sudden you realize it's very plausible, especially now. I mean, fortunately, living in New York City, I finding vegan food is really accessible. It's not as hard as living in a rural area um, or indigenous communities that prices of, you know, these to buy contents at grocery stores is ridiculously increased prices. So I'm definitely fortunate for that reason. But I think that reductionism is definitely a great way to do anything because you can really see in a smaller step that it's possible and it makes the next step a little easier. So I think that's a really, really good point. I I also just like love that as like, I, I think a lot of people view veganism and like plant-based diets as all or nothing when like, if you can do that, that's like great and amazing, but like a lot of people can't. Um, but even if you can reduce like how much meat and dairy you're consuming, that is still something yeah. like something is better than nothing. Like for me, I haven't bought milk, like cow's milk in years because it's, um, it's gross well yeah i hate it it's disgusting but like that's the thing like there are things that people just don't like so like i replace it with something plant-based like it's not hard like i love a good non-dairy milk alternative i've recently started eating non-dairy ice cream because i've yeah. discovered my body processes it <laughs> a lot better <laughs> yeah even if you're not like me whose body cannot handle dairy in the slightest like I think that most people would feel better if they stopped consuming 
dairy or gluten or processed meats and things like that. Like there's a reason people are drawn to plant-based diets beyond just ethics. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole body system of feeling better again, like to that conversation of profiting off of altering food sources for people. Mm -hmm. And I know a common misconception and something that people are weary about is that conversation of, you know, finding plant-based items tend to be more expensive. Having access to fresh produce is not as easy as getting fast food. Um, So in terms of that connection of being plant-based and maybe not having, you know, coming from a community of poverty, how do you think that that is the best way to start integrating those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be a long-term conversation, meaning like the people who provide those resources should be from those communities, mm-hmm. but most specifically from that specific city and region. Because I grew up in LA, I do not give any advice to younger than 17-year-olds, one, because I do not want to be sued by a parent that's very <laughs> concerned about their child's like, health and being influenced by me, but two, specifically um, thinking about like who controls finances. Right. Growing up, I did have some money. But it wasn't a lot. It was like less than $100, like maybe to go out to get pizza for 20 bucks with friends. And so, you know, a lot of people don't have finances. They don't know. I didn't even get an allowance growing up. I had to work to get my money. So it's like, you know, already a lot of low income students or low income folks that may want to partake in this, like are already ostracized by their families of like, you don't own the finances in this family. We pay for what we want. And so the decisions for them is very limited. On the other hand, when you're 18 plus, but let's say you're a college student or, you know, you're, you know, don't, you're working and you don't go to college. Like I asked them like, what are places that you've been to that offer vegan stuff? Because nowadays there's much more accessible items than there was in the late 2000s, like 2010, 11, like you didn't see almond milk as much on the shelves than you do now. And so I tell people, you know, how do you plan out your meals? Because when I was in college, I made that excuse of like, I don't have time to, to think mm-hmm. about what I eat. But then in reality, my friends were like, you spend more money going out to eat than what you would do on groceries, which makes you kind of a hypocrite of like, it's just a time thing. And so I try to tell people like, yes, time poverty is real. Like it does affect a lot of like black indigenous people of color. And like, that's another conversation to unpack. But I would say that like, as someone who kind of grew up living off 99 cent store, grocery, like food for less in LA, like, you know, the produce was like, not the best, I'm going to be honest, it expired within two to three days, but I had to make do for what I had and, you know, got inspired to make those recipes because of my culture, right? And the idea of like cooking, like, I don't know, like everyone should learn how to cook. Like my mom taught, like, I don't care what who you are, what gender you are, like you need to learn how to cook for yourself. And that's called sustenance, which is life. And so, you know, I think for me, like it was just the fact of like, I think time was a huge issue in planning, but I think a lot of people get themselves stressed out over those two subjects and then end up being like, I just don't have any time because I used to think the same way. Um, But that's some of the tips that I would kind of recommend for people to ask themselves, like, you know, a lot of dairy products compared to plant-based like products are cheaper. If you're only looking to buy frozen foods, then yes, it's going to be more expensive. But in reality, like, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't grow up, eating as much frozen foods like yes I did have a lot but at the same time I did cook a lot of 
like, you know, food. So it all comes down to like, how much time are you willing to invest to cook something for yourself and your others? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that comes to be an intimidating thing of having to give up convenience. Um, I think I even have that same issue, even though I prefer like better coffees than Starbucks, but you know, there's a Starbucks right near my subway stop. So it's kind of hard not to (laughs) on the way to a long shift at a hospital. But I think when you make those decisions that you usually find it's not as intimidating as you perceived it to be like meal planning. That is always intimidating. You watch people on the internet making all of these like prepackaged, amazing dinners. But once you realize that making things in bulk really does save you time and money, it's a really positive trade-off because it's no long, it is, it becomes convenient because it's already made for you it becomes lucrative because you're not having to spend money at in the middle of the day during your work shift and you're not having to buy a $15 salad. And I think those things are really inspiring. I think for me, I've really enjoyed like specifically in this season, summer, um, fall, I have access to farmer's markets. So by buying produce that I'm seeing that's fresh and local and like still has the dirt and grime on it makes me so happy. (laughs) And then I come home, like prep it all because I want to be able to use it. And all of a sudden it becomes much more tangible and easy for me to incorporate into my life because I've put in the work and the resources. Whereas, you know, sometimes if you go to a grocery store and buy a pre-washed bag of produce, it just sits in the bottom of your drawer and like, gets wilted and disgusting when I'm going to farmer's markets and actually making the time to prep it and have it easily accessible in my fridge. I'm rarely, if ever getting food waste because I'm consuming it all. And I think having that goes back to this conversation of having a relation to the food that you're eating and why people from indigenous communities, especially and other communities that, are able to focus on, you know, having a relationship with the food that they're creating and consuming, it's much more powerful. I think that too, with what you were saying about gardening and like having that and just anything that you're working and putting your own energy into is much more positive. And I think if we all incorporated that, a small trade-off of convenience it's the benefits are far greater. I also think that if, if we just realize that not every like plant-based meal has to have like a, a meat substitute in right. there, mm-hmm. I, I think, look, that is so freeing because I, I think I, look, at least for myself, like early on when I decided that I wanted to try and incorporate more plant-based stuff into my diet, uh, I like went through this phase of like, well, I need all like the, the the non-chicken chicken patties and yeah. and all of these like fancy like frozen items when it's like those are not necessary like if you like them and want to treat yourself to them sure but you don't have to use those like mm-hmm. like a sweet potato with some toppings mm, delicious like it's the simple things that you can just like throw together a bowl with 
again sweet potatoes because those are my favorite and it's about to be like major sweet potato season so i'm yes. Root vegetable season <laughs> oh i am so excited <laughs> <laughs> but even just like throwing a bowl together like if like with like some rice or quinoa and some beans and and whatever like veggies you have lying around that is a, that's a plant-based meal right there and once i like really let that sit for me it became so much easier to like not center meat as much in my life because like not you, you don't have to do that not every meal has to center around meat or a meat substitute exactly i think that's the biggest thing because even when people who consume me i'm pretty sure they don't buy frozen foods 24 7 either yeah. <laughs> like maybe they buy frozen chicken or frozen meat whatever to add to their meals but it's like we don't as vegans we don't do that either like we buy like what well, the majority plants and fruits and you know people who eat meat too do that they buy fruits and vegetables and like grains and stuff like that yeah i think it's really empowering to be able to i also find it more convenient to cook that way because meat takes time yeah. like I'd rather my partner who lives with me was gone for the summer so I was eating less meat because I like a lot of the alternatives like I love beans I love nuts I love seeds all those kinds of things that give protein into your diet that uh, my partner cannot eat so without him here I was just realizing how much I don't need meat in my diet it's easier it takes less time I feel better um and I just it stores better afterwards I think there's just a lot of more pros than to having a more plant-based diet like we're not fully saying that it's impossible like you have to go fully vegan obviously there's great benefits in being vegan completely but this conversation of reductionism and just incorporating more plant-based things, having meatless Mondays, whatever mantra makes it easier for you. It has a lot of um, benefits to it. And I think it's a really cool thing to have, you know, it's empowering. It's empowering. And you have a lot of control over the things that are going into your body and how your body's feeling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, and just like one thing I would love to talk about just a little bit before we wrap up today. Um, I know when I asked Kimona, like, what was a big thing that she wanted to ask when we had you on is because I know you've had recently on your platform, you were talking about climate doomism and we briefly touched on that. Um, but how do you think is a good way? because we've been talking about like existential dread on our podcast a lot lately, not in just terms of environmentalism, but, you know, political uprisings, racial tensions, cultural. It's everywhere. It's everything. <laughs> existential dread is so ingrained right now. And we're really trying to encourage both, both ourselves and like our audience to branch out of that. And I love that you've been talking about that on your social platforms. So how do you think is a, best way to combat these feelings and your best advice to people who are feeling this climate doomism? Yeah, no, I really love this question. I think it just depends on your community relationships with people in your own city. I say this because I think with climate doomism, and I draw a lot from my own personal experience, is that, you know, as low, as a someone grew up low income, like my parents were struggling to make ends meet. Like they just wanted to pay the bills, like pay the rent, 
pay the medical bills and survive. And so you kind of get accustomed and normalized to injustice to be like, oh, well, you know, at least I'm alive today. At least my family is alive today. Or other families are struggling where it's like your family members have mental health issues or people who are imprisoned. And so like that creates a lot of trauma for these like black indigenous people of color. And so I think like intergenerationally, like when faced with climate doomism, people who are already experiencing doom from these systems that fail to serve them already have a bit like normalized to be like, okay, well, how is that going to change my life anyways? You know, at the end of the day, I'm already suffering. And so I think like there needs to be this space where these like experts in climate science and writing specifically, I would say like white men that just write about doom and gloom of like who gets centered which is generally white people in those articles, who gets interviewed, people from the global North countries now that it's affecting everyone. It's like, this is not new to a lot of us. Like we've been experiencing climate doomism since the day we've been displaced by our countries. Like there's a reason why my parents don't live in Mexico. There's a reason why like a lot of land was lost and like why, you know, we live here today. And so I think with climate doomism and trying to navigate like this idea of like, you know, anthropogenic actions when in actuality it's like corporate, um, corporate white supremacist values that are centered on capital GDP growth to blame for this ecological crisis. People are trying to kind of unfold themselves at different levels. And this is where people kind of fall into despair because I think specifically younger generations that you know, are experiencing this right now have to think about all these other issues. When I was growing up, we talked about global warming. And it's not to say it was like not a big deal, but I still got that experience as a younger teenager not to really think that much about climate change or to be like, don't really understand what you mean, but I'm going to try to figure it out, you know, having time. And now it's like, like, no, this is a climate crisis. And you know, we're experiencing a lot of heavy effects. Now you have to figure out a way to like, you know, fix this planet. And so I think that's what is becoming really hard. And there's this disconnection with people's in, um, with indigenous worldviews, cultural based experiences and your lived experiences of how you're able to really mesh those experiences intertwined or reference um, to kind of create climate solutions based off your city. And I think this is where we need collectivized power because climate doomism is not to say people should never feel doom, right? I think it's valid to feel hopeful and helpless at the same time. But it's to say that like we cannot let these Western media outlets to try to disempower collectivized movements when resistance and many movements have existed, whether it's just frontline activists that don't have any phones or fighting for, you know, water rights, fighting for human rights, animal rights, like these are all people in the front lines and there's different people that we just don't know. We have to just act, ask ourselves like, what else can we do um, to hold space? And I say community because that's the most accessible thing rather than people always thinking, I have to become a doctor. Or, like I have to become a policymaker to change the law. Or, I have to go to law school. I have to do this. And it's like, we all have different roles. Everyone's role is valid in this movement. And we all need to stop like gatekeeping each other of like who's doing more work than other because all we're doing is like traumatizing others to see who can traumatize the most, which 
you know, contributes to this idea of oppression Olympics, which yeah. we have seen now in the new TV show that's going to be coming out, The Activist. We were just talking about that. <laughs> we were literally just talking about that before we started this conversation <laughs> with you. Yeah, I think that was perfectly said. I this it really comes down to pretty much in every conversation of what we touch on here, but this we have individual power. Like people definitely lose touch in feeling like, well, I'm not the one making these laws. I'm not the one making these decisions and they lose touch with the power that they have as an individual in reducing their waste, reducing their meat intake, reducing, you know, lots of different individual components as a collective individual people can have a big change on our environment and in our laws. And, you know, we have power as individual people, but it is important, obviously, to acknowledge where we aren't responsible, right? That these major corporations are at the root of these issues. So I think it's definitely that dichotomy that we have to remember, but also address both, make sure that we're having these Mm -hmm. conversations and saying, how can I do better? And also how can I hold the people in power more accountable? Yes, exactly. And I love how you mentioned community. I think community and finding a collective, figuring out where the like-minded people are around you who are, you know, also kind of going through it with recognizing and, and reconciling with the fact that we are in a climate crisis, but also not letting that you know, take over, the the power is in the collective. The power is in us joining up together. It's in us finding each other. It's, and it's in us lifting each other up. And I think that, that, like, I couldn't have said it better. It, it's, it's everything that we need right now. Yeah, I know. And I love that you both said that because I think at the end of the day, and this is beyond digital media space, it's like what matters most is the people in your life at the end of the day, when a climate crisis hit, nobody's going to care about queer brown vegan. They're going to be like, you're just a human being. And like, I think a lot of people need to like challenge their toxic mentality spaces. Even myself, like as a person who had a lot of ego and still trying to challenge myself, it's like at the end of the day, like there, it's easier for someone online to tell you you're not doing enough work than you saying, you know, building a relationship with your community and you choosing Mm -hmm. not to document it because that's just a sacred relationship and you choose to do that. And at the end of the day, the person who's just angry and calling out each other is just really playing in the hands of the oppressors to further create division because that's what they want us to do is to divide us. And I think that's something that I really learned in my younger years of like, no, I'm tired of people trying to re-traumatize others to be like, I'm doing more work than you. You're not doing enough. When in reality, it's like, at the end of the day, like, you don't know where I live. You don't know my community members. And I'm here to serve them and myself, not you. That's online and trying to, like, critique me. Like, you know, and it's valid to say, like, there should be critique. There should be discussion. But it's also to say, like, at the end of the day, like, like, social, like, like, I always tell myself, like, I'm just Isaiah Fernandez. Like, it doesn't matter who I, what work I did, because what I don't want to be known for my brand. I want to be known just the fact of like, I was able to at least like live a life that was seeking justice for others with myself 
rather than trying to live this superficial, artificial world where it's like, you know, I have a lot of errors, a lot of flaws. I've said a lot of problematic things that had to be addressed when I was younger. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't always recognize in movements. Right. Well, I think that your platform is at a really special space because you do hold yourself accountable and you do connect with your upbringing and the way that you have gotten to this space and, you know, centering community. That's something we really care about here. Community care is something we really, really value. So I think that you're doing everything that you can. And we are so happy to have been part of this conversation with you. It has been so exciting. You've been a dream guest for me for forever (laughs) since we started this podcast. So uh, we are so glad to have had you here and Everyone listening can find you at Queer Brown Vegan um, on Instagram. And is there anywhere else that you'd like anyone to find you? Uh, no, I mean, anything <laughs> Queer Brown Vegan, you can find me on Tumblr, um, Pinterest. I'm everywhere now these days. But yes, definitely um, feel free, anyone, to connect with me ever on any socials or LinkedIn. You know, I'm always available for any mentorship and resources and things like that. <laughs> Amazing. Come on, tell everyone where they can find us. <laughs> you can find us at Rebels Advocate Pod on Instagram, at Rebels ADV Pod on Twitter, and at Rebels Advocate Pod.wordpress.com on the general interwebs. Thank you so much, Isaiah. It's been an amazing time. This has been a great conversation. And uh, we'll see you guys next Tuesday. And every Tuesday. Every Bye. Tuesday. Bye. Bye. <laughs>